Hopefully you can relate to this. You know, there's that story, that movie, that TV series that you're gripped by. And it's about to reach its climax. The final clash between good and evil. The protagonist and their enemy. The resolution of the central conflict. And you are on the edge of your seat. Bated breath and anticipation. You can't look away. You can't turn the lights out and go to sleep till you've got to the end of the book. And then the scene changes. What? And one series I watched while I was off sick over the last few weeks, you know, right at the fact that you're getting to the, you know, to the, to the climax, suddenly the sign appears on the screen three days earlier. What? And uh, we find ourselves with another thread of the story. Important to the plot to understand the whole, but like an interlude before the finale. And it's, uh, yeah, Star Wars is a good example of that. And um, it's a, a literary and it's a cinematic device to continue building the, the tension and to tell the story. To lead us back to the climax with a different... Uh, with a different understanding, from a different angle, with new information and insight. And uh, the Lord of the Rings is really good at doing that. Um, it's, it's sort of almost at, at, the, at the forefront of multiple storylines coming together. Um, you know, uh, you follow the different journeys of the members of the Fellowship of the Rings as it breaks up and they go their separate ways. You journey to Gondor with Merriduk and Pippin. And then you uh, journey to Mordor with Frodo and Sam before it brings it all together for the final climax and victory. And in our visual storytelling world of film and TV, uh, we're used to it as well. Flashback. Or again, you know, those um, multiple storylines. And John uses the same literary, literary device in Revelation with fast scene changes or in this case, vision changes. And the passage we had read today in Revelation 10 is one of those interludes. Earlier in Revelation, as the seven seals were opened and there's a series of plagues and suffering, war and disaster are released, we see this happen as well. After the sixth seal was opened, we have an interlude. In chapter 7, there are two visions, the 144,000, and the vast multitude before the throne of God, before the seventh seal was opened. Visions that show us an important reality, a different thread to the story, which we need to hear before the end is reached. In that case, that God was able to save his people. He had sealed them before it was all going to happen, and they would dwell, they would dwell with him for eternity. Important for us to know before the final climax of the seventh seal. In Revelation 8 and 9, we also see the series of seven, the seven angels with the seven trumpets, and we have another series of plagues and judgments on the earth. And as each trumpet is, as each trumpet is blown, at the end of the sixth trumpet with the vast army from beyond the Euphrates, we're told that despite all that had happened, people had not turned from worshipping idols or repented and turned away from their evil practices because of these tragedies. Again, there's a pause in the action, a change of scene. Again, in a series of two visions, the mighty angel and the small scroll in chapter 10, and the vision of the two witnesses at the start of chapter 11. That's before the seventh trumpet is blown. 
And we're invited to look and see what is important for us to know. In this case, it shows us about God's salvation and what God's people are to be doing in the midst of what is going on. In chapter 10, John is told to continue to prophesy. And in the two witnesses, we see God's people bearing witness to Jesus, even in the face of persecution. So let's have a look at this vision in chapter 10. What John sees, what is said, and what John does. And then we'll look at what it says to us today. Hopefully it will all make sense. <laughs> the chapter starts with those words, Then I saw again. And we constantly needed to, need to be reminded that Revelation is a series of visions. It's not a linear series of events on a timeline. It's a message being conveyed through this apocalyptic genre. In, the, in this vision, John is back on earth. And John sees a mighty angel come down from heaven. And the languages he uses to describe the angel of those that elsewhere in scripture are associated with God. Did you notice those things? Clothed in clouds, a rainbow above his head, his face like the sun, legs like fiery pillars. He plants his feet on the sea and the earth and his voice is like the roar of a lion. This has led some scholars to think that this is Jesus referred to here. Um, however, nowhere else in scripture is Jesus referred to as an angel. And there is no confusion in scripture about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Uh, other scholars, rightly I think, say John uses this imagery to accentuate the size and the power of this angel, and the fact that it has come down from heaven. His appearance reflects the fact that he's been in the presence of God. In the Old Testament, Moses spends time up on the mountain, face to face with God, and comes down, and his face is glowing. And here the angel that stands in the presence of God reflects being in God's glory. Now, when I read this, I couldn't help but think of a time when my son James and I were in the reception of our doctors in Auckland. Our doctor came up and stood close to us and started to talk. Now, Dr. Aidy played basketball to a very high level, nationally and internationally, I think. And when I say a high level, he was six foot ten. And that was across the shoulders. You know, he was massive. And when he left, James turned around to me, and he was about 19 at the time, and we we're both six foot tall. And he said, you know, Dad, there aren't many times when I feel like a little boy anymore. But this is one of them. And I had to agree. Yeah, yeah, this is one of them. Standing next to John, uh, Dr. Aidy, you realised how big he was. And it made you feel quite small. And we are supposed to be impressed and awed by the size and the appearance of this angel. It's vastly bigger than even the way the Romans and the Greeks describe their God. Maybe it's a polemic. And here this amazing uh, massive being is simply the servant messenger of an infinitely greater God. And we are supposed to see God's sovereignty over creation as this angel, the sent messenger, is able to stand on both land and ocean. And this is echoed in the oath the angel swears on the name of the creator of earth and sea. 
in the midst of all that has gone on and the reluctance of people to repent in chapter 9, we see this vision of the sovereignty of God. Nothing is stopping God's plans and purposes in the world. And John's attention is drawn to the little scroll which is open in his hand. Having come from heaven, the scroll is probably like the ones in Revelation 5 and 6 that have been opened by the Lamb. But this one is open, it's not closed. And we don't know, but the scroll takes centre stage later in the vision. And it's very much the idea of God's word, his will, his purpose being open and available. Then we have this strange couple of verses. Did you notice? Which talk about the seven thunders and what they say. And in Revelation 7 has to do with God's purposes and we have the seven churches in Asia Minor, the seven spirits. More importantly, we have the seven seals and the seven trumpets and later we'll have the seven bowls poured out. But here as John goes down to write what the seven thunders says, he's told by a voice from heaven, God, not to, to seal these things up. Now it's challenging and hard to understand. It leaves us scratching our heads. Ironically, to talk about the seven thunders is to argue from silence because we don't know what they've said. They may be another series of judgment, like the seals and the trumpets and the later bowls. Um, you know, and uh, the angel is saying, we don't need another round of what's already happened. We don't need to keep going round and round with this tragedies to try and make people repent and turn to God. We do need to God, no, but, but from this we know that God knows more about the future and what is going to happen than we do. And while Revelation gives us insight, it's not a complete picture of what God is doing. And it leads us to what the angel has to say. After swearing an oath, he says that there will be no more delay. Another possibility is that there will be no more time. As the seventh angel prepares to blow their trumpet, the mystery of God, the secret truth of God, will be accomplished as it was foretold to the prophets. And for the martyrs and the people facing the coming persecution, there is great comfort in knowing that God is not going to delay. That judgment and vindication and victory will come at the time of God's choosing. Now, if this repetition of seven is historic, talking of the rise and falls of empires like in Daniel and Ezekiel, the message is the same that admits that, admit, amidst that, God is working out his salvation plans and purposes and this repetition of all the things that go on. But the issue here is, what, does the, what is the mystery of God that is accomplished? And uh, the first thing we need to note is, it's a mystery. However, the term is used elsewhere in the New Testament, which gives us a way of unpacking it. In Colossians chapter 2, where Paul is writing to Colossae and mentions the church at Laodicea, both of the seven churches of Asia Minor that Revelation is written to, he talks of the mystery of God being revealed. And that mystery is Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. Paul goes on to say that it's the secret that unlocks all God's wisdom and knowledge. Likewise, Jesus is spoken of as fulfilling all that was said through the prophets. Uh, if the seven trumpets are talking about things that have happened already historically uh, by the time of John's writing, 
uh, if that's the case, then this it talks about the last chapter of human history uh, written, uh, coming after God has revealed his salvation plan in Jesus Christ. If it's looking at future events, then in the middle of all that's going on, God's salvation and plan in Jesus will be revealed and shown to the world. Either way, it's an assurance for John's listeners about to face persecution and for us as we face suffering and difficulty that God's mystery, God's purposes through and in Christ will be brought to fulfillment without delay. The kingdom of God has come and will be, uh, uh, will be established. Um, <clears throat> as if to accentuate this, as we go to the seven bowls later in Revelation, there is no interlude between the sixth and seventh bowl. There's no more delays. Now John is told to go and take the open scroll from the mighty angel by the voice in heaven, Probably not the most easy task to go up to this massive being and sort of take the scroll. Um, but John goes and asks the angel for the scroll, and it's given. The angel tells him to eat the scroll. And while it may be sweet like honey in his mouth, it will turn sour in his stomach. Then he's told to prophesy to nations, tribes, and to kings. And this is a familiar scene from the Old Testament. Ezekiel is given a scroll to eat, which is sweet like honey and turns sour in his belly. Jeremiah uses the same language to talk about what he's been called to prophesy. So in one way, this scene is a reaffirmation of John's role as a prophet. And Psalm 119 speaks of God's word as being sweet as honey. It's a way of saying that the words on the scroll are God's words. Some suggest in this instant it was the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Others, the prophecy that he is giving in Revelation. Either way, that's an affirming of the Lamb of God. As God's word, it's a great and sweet gift. However, as John and any of the prophets take it on board and digest it, literally here, and it becomes part of them, the reality of its meaning turns sour, as John and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and any who digest God's word see that not only does it mean God's saving work, but also suffering for God's people and judgment for those who reject it. Now, you see, I've seen preachers, and you've probably too have, who really seem to relish and enjoy speaking about what God will do to the wicked. They sort of get off on it. You know, but I wonder here if we don't see a more genuine understanding of what it means to bring God's word, that it's a task of full, both of joy, because it speaks of God's great love, but also the sorrow and pain of what it means for those who are not prepared to listen. The other thing worth noting here is the list of people John is told to prophesy to. And it's very much like the lists elsewhere in Revelation which speak about the totality of humanity. Peoples, nations, language. And in here, instead of tribes, we have kings. John's message in Revelation is going to focus very much on certain kings, rulers, and leaders of nations and empires. And it's good to keep that in mind as we go through the second half of Revelation, which we're going to do after Pentecost this year. You know, with the beasts and the woman and the like, as they represent kings and their kingdoms. 
and they would be known to John's readers what they represent. Uh, in John's time, that will be reflected in those, uh, you know, in those kingdoms at the time and those that will come in history. And the message that John brings is for them and a warning and an invitation to come and worship God in Christ. And that was a pretty hard slog through the passage, right? <laughs> and I want to just finish by drawing out three points for us today. First is, in the face of all that goes on in the world, this passage again shows us God's sovereignty and God's power over the whole earth. He is the creator, the one who rules, the one who is working out his purposes and plans. God is the one wanting to reconcile humanity with himself through Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. And this is encouraging as we look at what goes on in the world at the moment and on into the future. You know, I've heard a lot of people recently looking at Revelation and they start talking about what Satan is doing and how evil is growing and how this is that and this is that and it's going to get so much worse and bad and all that sort of thing. But we need to keep in mind that the key message of Revelation to us is that God is sovereign. Amen. Amen. You know, God is sovereign. Now, we may find our greatest comfort in the imminence of God, in the midst of personal difficult, that abiding presence of God, in my um, way of sort of beating up the English, English language, the withersness, it's not a real word, but I've made it up, the withersness of God. But uh, we also need to be aware and keep in mind that God is sovereign. He is on the throne. He is working out his plans and purposes. His messengers bring his word. And uh, in actual fact, uh, in reality, it's these two extremes. The beautiful, wonderful imminence of God and the awe-inspiring transcendence of God. The two extremes that are the center of our heart. Secondly, is to be aware that God is not on a go slow or takes time off, but can be trusted to do what he has purposed in his time. And this is important for us to, to remember. You see, we live in the last days, and I'm not going to do a last day countdown, but we have from the time of the first coming of Jesus, that's what the, Old Te the New Testament tells us, and we can trust God to be working out and bringing the mystery of Jesus Christ to be revealed in his plans and purposes in on time. And you know, with no overruns. It's encouraging. You know, you hear through the scriptures that cry of those who suffer. How long? How long, O oh Lord? How long must I suffer? How long must I find myself under this oppression and this tyranny? And this answers that heart cry. No more delay. It's encouraging because as the psalmist says, our times are in God's hands, both personal and in terms of the flow of history. We may face persecution and difficulty, but we can trust to be that God is in control. Revelation shows that empires rise and fall, just as we see in Daniel and Ezekiel and other places. But the kingdom of God is eternal. 
In the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow in Luke 18, where a woman gets justice only because the judge is worn out because of her badgering, the punchline is that God is not like that. It says God is quick to see his people get justice. Will he find people of faith when he comes? People who trust that it is so and live in a way where they bring all their lives to God in prayer, trusting that God is quick to see his people get justice. Thirdly, John gives us a picture of how to live as we face the times around us, the difficulties and the trials. We, as God's people, need to be different from those at the end of Revelation 9 who do not change their ways, who live for themselves and who worship idols. We need to see John's obedience, his willingness to obey the voice from heaven and do what God commands as a model for our lives. And the process is the same as well. That we take the open scroll, the word of God, his living word in Christ, revealed in the written word as a sweet gift to us. And we eat it and digest it. And we absorb it into our being and allow it to change us. And then we proclaim it in what we say and how we live. John had a prophetic call and we are a prophetic people. Not a pathetic people, a prophetic people. Our community and our interaction in the world proclaims the kingdom of God. The end of the Sermon of the Mount uh, in Matthew, Jesus says those who build their lives on a rock are those who hear Jesus' words and obey. And I found myself drawn back to the four parables in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, which Jesus finishes his talk about the times that are to come. And when he tells us how we are to live as we wait, the parable of the unloving servant, a call to not grow cold in loving one another. The ten virgins and their lamps to keep our spirituality alive. The talents or the gold coins, whether we are called to continue to invest in the kingdom of God. And the sheep and the goats, we are told to care for the least amongst us. You know, that, that's God's open word to us. It's an open scroll. And we need to allow it and digest it into our lives and to live it out. And you know, those things are as counterculture today as they would have been in the Roman Empire. They proclaim Jesus as Lord as opposed to Caesar as Lord. And they, along with our words, point people to Jesus, the mystery of God's salvation, God's kingdom and rule amidst the realms of this world. Amen? Great. Let's pray. Thank you that you're sovereign, God, that you are in control. How easy we forget it. It would be nice to have a vision of a mighty angel in front of us. But we have this constant vision of Christ who came and lived and died for us that allows us to realize just how sovereign and great you are. We pray that you'd help us to know that our times are in your hands, that you can be trusted to bring justice for your people, to do things in your time, the right time. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be like John, to allow your word to enter our bodies and our lives and be absorbed by it, that we might prophesy, proclaim the kingdom of God 
until Christ comes.